Good morning. If you would, open with me to Psalm 123. We're continuing our series through the Psalms of Ascent, and today we're actually going to consider two Psalms together consecutively. Um, Let's pray again. Once again, Steve just prayed for us, but let's pray again as we consider God's Word. Heavenly Father, we need you to illuminate our eyes and our minds, that we would see beautiful things in your law. But Lord, even more than that, we need you to regenerate our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Help us come not just to understand, but to know and love what we see today. Lord, I pray for courage and endurance as we seek to walk with you and walk with one another. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. This is Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then we would have been swallowed up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away The torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. This is God's word. It's been said that the Psalms of Ascent give voice to the feeling of homesickness. Not just a homesickness of someone who's away from the place where they live, but as it relates to Israel, the homesickness of people who have settled among hostility. Settled among and surrounded by hostility. Israel was in constant conflict and turmoil with the nations all around them, not to mention the turmoil from within Israel itself. And they had their promised land, right? But with their three times a year going up to Jerusalem and the longing that they had, it seems as though they were missing a home that they knew they needed, but they had never fully experienced. They were a homesick people. Before I came to Redeemer, I spent 10 years in summer camp ministry. And so I think that at least qualifies for some kind of certificate, if not a degree, in dealing with homesickness. I saw five-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 22-year-olds struggle with this this ache and this longing to enjoy what was right before them, counteracted with a fear of the unknown, right? And a perceived distance between them and the people, places, and things that made them feel safe and secure, right? That's homesickness. Fear of the unknown and a distance between the people, places, and things that make us feel safe and secure. And homesickness would start the first day. Day camp, overnight camp, staff training. Day camp was particularly interesting because the kids would come go back home at the end of the day. But homesickness was still something that we saw 
So the kids would arrive in a big parking lot. We'd have buses lined up. They would meet their counselor, like their two counselors, meet their other campers in their cabin. And then once everyone was there, we'd load up on the buses. And one of the traditions that we had the counselors do each and every bus ride is sing the entire time for 40 minutes all the way out to camp. And this accomplished a few things, right? It kept the kids occupied, which promoted peace on the bus. They didn't fight with each other while they were singing. Next, it staved off this homesickness and this fear of the unknown, engaging their minds. And then finally, it actually helped them anticipate the joy that they were about to enter into. Does that make sense? It was actually setting the tone for the rest of the week as they sang their way through the homesickness. Friends, for us, singing to God with one another through the homesickness accomplishes much the same thing. As we long for a better city, for a new Jerusalem, it promotes peace among us, it motivates our perseverance to keep going, and it prepares us for the joy that we are going to enter into. So today, I just want us to consider two things. Just two points from these two psalms, one for each psalm. These two psalms, in a beautiful juxtaposition, remind us to first look to the Lord above. That's Psalm 123. And then Psalm 124 reminds us to lean on the Lord beside. So first, look to the Lord above, then lean on the Lord beside. Look with me at Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. You may remember last week, Elbert talked about Psalm 121, where the psalmist lifts his eyes to the hills, and the hills representing the dangerous journey that was ahead of him. Here the psalmist, where does he look? Directly to God enthroned. Directly to the king. And then in verse 2, we see that his gaze focuses. What is he looking for? Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The psalmist is looking directly to the throne of God for mercy. Directly to the throne of God for mercy. Relief from the pain of living in hostility. He seeks mercy from the hand of the king. Now, it's important for us to connect the enthronement that we see in verse 1 with the master and mistress language that we see in verse 2. Why? If you're like me, I don't think I'm the only one. It's easy for my own knowledge of our evil history, not only world history, but American history, to be the lens through which I see ancient Near East culture and the language of Scripture, right? So when I see master and servant, there's baggage that I have from our country that is not present. I wish we had time to unpack that more, but this just isn't the right text to do that with. But when you connect the enthronement that you see in the words themselves that are used for master and mistress, it's the word where we get Adonai. And the word for mistress is the word really better translated queen. This speaks less to ownership, like you would see in slavery, and more to the devoted servant of a king and a queen. Does that make sense? A servant looking to the hand of the king or queen that he relies on and that he or she knows will take care of them and provide. The devoted servant of the king or queen. So we look to God. 
dependent on Him to provide for us and to protect us. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see why we need mercy. Why does the psalmist need mercy? Look with me. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, the contempt of the proud. The reason the psalmist needs mercy is he is sick of contempt and mocking and scorn. He's sick of it. And he uses the phrase, more than enough. I have to admit, I chuckled a little bit when I was translating this because the sense here is that he's full of it. He's had it up to here with scorn and mockery and contempt. Growing up in our house, we would say, you are on my last nerve, right? That's the sense of this psalmist has had enough of it. He has had it up to here. The psalmist, speaking for Israel, laments to the king about proud people mocking and showing contempt. Friends, can't we resonate with that ache as we look out into our world right now? We really have had enough of the contempt and the mockery and the scorn and the hatred being thrown towards one another. Now, the topic of contempt somehow keeps coming up in the text that I preach. I promise I'm not going looking for them, right? This one was the next Psalm of Ascent that was assigned my way. But when I see that this topic of contempt keeps coming up, I know that I have to learn something from this. So my hope it would be the same for you. Just to review, contempt is a disregard of another human being made in the image of God. It's a rolling of the eyes. Really what contempt is, it's a socially acceptable hatred. Because it can happen in your heart and it feels justified because it's a posture of, I am good, that person is evil, thus I can hate them. Arthur Brooks, who's a social scientist and a Harvard professor, actually just put out a book called Love Your Enemies. And one of the things that he says is this, politicians, media, academia, and unfortunately the church are telling us that it's okay to hate and ridicule your enemies. As long as they're wrong, it's okay to, to mock them. It's okay to ridicule. It's okay to hate them. But he says this, if your desire is to then persuade them to another perspective, to influence them, ultimately to love them, right? If the desire is to seek the good, he says, how is that hatred working out for you? How is that hatred really working out for you? He says, we should disagree on these things. The things that are dividing our country and our world right now, they matter. He says, but you have zero chance of influencing change if contempt is your MO. If contempt is the tool that you're using to try and tell people what you believe, what the truth is. Friends, the Hebrew word here for contempt has to do with belittling or despising someone. It's the posture of Goliath as he looks down on David, mocking him for coming with a stick, with coming with stones. It's the posture of the Philistines towards Israel continually through their history. Friends, if Israel cried out to God, to stop to the contempt of nations coming their way, how much more must we cry 
for the contempt to stop coming from us towards the nations. And even more than that, the contempt coming from us towards one another in the body of Christ. One commentator on Psalm 123 says this, Other things bruise, but contempt is cold steel, diving deeper into the Spirit than any other form of rejection. Cold steel that dives deep into the heart. Friends, mockers will mock, the scornful will scorn, and the self-confident will go their self-satisfied way. But my hope is that we would be people who walk with our eyes up. We would be people who walk with our eyes up. The psalmist cries out with a deep awareness of the injustice that's been done against him and that has been done against his people. And then he takes action. He petitions the king, right? He petitions the king of kings and the Lord of lords. As we look at our culture and as we look at our own hearts, we may be tempted to despair, except for the look up at a righteous king who can show mercy and who does show mercy. May we be homesick people who look to the Lord above instead of taking our sadness out on one another. Instead of taking our sadness out on others who look to the Lord above. What does this look like? My dad was a dentist, my mom was a dental hygienist, and I was homeschooled. My, me and my two siblings, two siblings were homeschooled. So you can imagine that the workplace was a bit of a family affair. And it was a, a very, let's say, educationally enriching environment. So in, beto- in between patients, we learned how to make a, a bobsled track in the center aisle and just run up and down. In the back room where all of his tools were, he had this micro-abrasive machine that you stuck your hands into. I still don't know what it was. It was like a tiny sandblaster. And we would take it and we'd draw things and write things on our fingernails in the abrasive machine. We would take the composite filling material and we'd squirt it out on the table and put on sunglasses and get the curing light and make stuff out of it, little sculptures. Very educational. But if I needed my father, I could walk just outside of the treatment room and I could call his name. And he would stop and he would turn and he'd look at me out from underneath the magnifying loops, the things with the light and the magnifying glass on it. And he'd look at me, and I could ask him whatever I needed about my homework or otherwise. I had privileges. I had access. Because he was my father, I could look to him and know that he would look to me, while some poor guy still had the mouth protractors in getting a root canal. I had access. Friends, the servant of God, pictured here, in the Psalms, becomes the child of God under the new covenant and has unlimited access because they enjoy all the rights and privileges of Jesus. Think about it this way. We have a voice in the halls of power. How? Through a simple glance upward. Through a simple glance upward. The question is, where do you look when you've had it up to here? Where do we look when we've had enough? And what are we doubting when we fail to look to God? Do we doubt His goodness? Is He truly good? Do we doubt His love? Do we doubt His power? 
to rule the very world He created and to rule our lives, which He brought up from the dust. We may never put it into words like this, but we betray ourselves when we look to other people's opinions and approval to confirm our own sense of rightness and righteousness. We betray ourselves when we fail to look upward and condemn others and listen long enough to hear something we don't like or we don't understand. Friends, I want to encourage you. This psalmist was experiencing an injustice against himself. Things were being said about him that were not true. I want you to speak the truth and advocate in your sphere of influence, but don't look to contempt and mockery as your tools. We don't look to contempt and mockery as our tools. We have a better way. Notice the psalmist did not answer himself. He did not defend himself against the scorn and the mockery and the contempt. Look again at verse 4. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud, period, full stop. He appeals to some. Instead of defending himself, he appeals to someone who can do something. And friends, we cannot and will not look to God if we put ourselves in the place of strength and autonomy and authority. It's true that if I am on high, the only place I have to look is down. If I am on high, the only place I have to look is down. And so when contempt and scorn come, which they always have for the people of God, and they always will, for simply believing and living as if the word of God is true, contempt of scorn simply for following the one true God, we have nowhere to turn but upward. We have nowhere to turn but upward. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Mercy, favor, strength, and relief come when an upward eye meets an attentive downward focus. We can look to him knowing that he is looking for us. Friends, the cross and the resurrection give us the unmitigated attention of God. And he gives us his powerful hand and his mercy. May our homesick souls look to the Lord above for comfort in moments when violence and hatred seem to surround us. That's Psalm 123. Let's turn and look at Psalm 124 and lean on the Lord beside. Lean on the Lord beside. The superscription tells us that this is actually a psalm of David, and the occasion, due to some similarities in the language, um, is likely around 2 Samuel 5. This is when the Philistines attack, the vulnerability of David's young reign is exposed, and yet David is able to climb Mount Zion with the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it had been taken. They are able to get it back, and they rise up Mount Zion rejoicing with the Ark of the Covenant, much like the Israelites who would sing these songs as they made their pilgrimages to Zion. And so 124 is not a lament like 123. Lament is crying out to God for help. That's what we see in 123. Psalm 124 is a psalm of thanksgiving. Praising God for survival. Think about it this way. Psalm 24 shows us that God answered the prayer in Psalm 123. Isn't that amazing? 
Psalm 124 shows us that God answered the prayer in 123. And 124 shows us four analogies of life-threatening danger. In verse 3, we see judgment as being swallowed by the earth, swallowed alive. Verse 4, their anger like a flood washing them away. Verse 6, being mauled by a beast. And verse 7, being trapped in bondage like a bird in a cage. But look with me at verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Stop right there. If it had not been for the Lord who was, Lord who was, right there. All that is, is simply the past tense form of God's name, I am. I am, present tense. I was, past tense, future tense, I will be. This is the past, present, and future Emmanuel. This is Yahweh, Emmanuel, the personal covenantal name of God. From the burning bush until now, until all eternity. Friends, the message of 124 is this. If the past, present, and future Emmanuel had not been with us, we would have no hope. We would have been destroyed. And friends, this name shapes our past, it shapes our present, it shapes our future. This name is our access to the throne room. It is who we lift our eyes to above and who we know is right here beside us. Psalm 123, the Lord, beside, the Lord above. Psalm 124, the Lord beside. God's nature as being above us and holy is often known as His, his transcendence. His nature as being beside us is often known as His eminence, right? His accessibility. So He is, the, and the wonderful thing that we present, is presented all the way throughout Scripture, first page to the end, is that the one true God is both holy and accessible. He is both enthroned and incarnate. He is both and. This, friends, is unique among world religions. In all other world religions, either transcendence or eminence are focused on and stressed. The majority of them stress the transcendence of God, that God is distant, He is unapproachable, He is often capricious. We have no idea what he is going to do at any given moment or why. You can imagine the type of religion that flows out of this then. You're constantly wondering, have I done enough for God? It's a constantly striving up through virtue and good deeds to merit the favor of this God with no assurance ever that you've ever done enough. On the other hand, World religions that stress the eminence of God, that He is present, can be pantheistic or panentheistic. That God is so associated with the things that He has created that He no longer really is God. God is everything. Everything is God. And so what happens there is that we're tempted to make God into our own image. If, if, if God becomes just kind of this cosmic idea of goodness, we can think of him and conceive of him however we please. All of a sudden, God begins to love all the same things we love, and he just so happens to hate all the same things we hate. I was actually just recently listening to an atheist talk about his journey from Christianity into atheism, and he said it started with starting to pick apart his word. 
he started to say, well, I really don't think that God could ever do that. I really don't agree with that. And he says, the last God that I worshipped was really great because he was just like me. But at that point, he had realized he had created a false God. And where he went wrong was realizing he had created a false God. But where he went wrong was assuming that everyone else had created the same false God. And that is not the case. God reveals himself in Scripture as both transcendent and imminent, both holy and incarnate, enthroned and accessible. Friends, these two psalms show in a very small way what Scripture teaches us about God, that the good news and our God is both and. He is both holy and enthroned and righteous and even angry at sin and injustice that is going on in our own hearts and all throughout our world. God is holy. He is not pleased. While at the same time, you have to make that transition from both to and. He is both holy and he is accessible, incarnate, forgiving, and loving. And friends, our spiritual world hangs on these seemingly two insignificant words. These little prepositions. God is above and God is beside. God is above and God is beside. Friends, if by repentance and faith in Christ alone, you are now a servant, a child of God, God is for you and God is on your side. The holy God of Israel is for you on your side. And our hope is not that we are on God's side, but that he was willing to be on ours. Let me say that again because I need it to sink down into my own soul too. Our hope is not that we are on God's side, but that God was willing to come be on our side. He was willing to come be close. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say, say it a little louder for the people in the back. If the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been destroyed. Friends, in the Psalms and in much of the Old Testament, it's very clear who is on God's side. Israel are God's chosen people, right? Therefore, he is against anyone who would do harm to his children. But now, where are God's children? Scattered. Scattered in every tribe, tongue, and nation. Scattered across countries and centuries and political parties. No one with confidence, no worldly group can say, we are on God's side. The good news is that God was willing to come be on the side of sinners like you and like me. The differences in our world are deep and they are important even on a spiritual level. But every king, country, church has fallen short of the glory of God but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have all fallen short but we are justified by a free gift. And this redemption is costly. Our Savior was willingly hated, held in contempt. He was mocked and he was killed for you. He took the scorn. He took the contempt. The soldiers also mocked him. This is Luke 23. 
The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. He didn't save himself, but he voluntarily gave up his life only to take it up again to be raised with glory with his beloved heavenly father. Friends, to use the language of 124, if the Lord had not been on our side through Christ, we would have been destroyed. In our sin, we deserve to be swallowed alive by the earth. Instead, Christ went into the earth for us and raised us to victory. In our sin, the flood of God's good justice against our personal and our corporate sin warranted our destruction in a flood. But God made a way through the waters. And we are safe if we are safe inside of him. When Satan was ready and willing to tear us apart like a lion, he shut the mouth of the lion and brought us out. And when we were ensnared and trapped by our own desires for power, for wealth, for pleasure, on a way to our own ruin, he set us free and calls us to walk in freedom. Friends, read along with me. The end of 7. The end of verse 7, chapter 124. I want you to say it after me. The snare is broken. And we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord. The help of the psalmist is in the God of creation. He is not just a builder. He is not just a designer. He initiates all things. He maintains all things, he controls all things, he consummates all things, and he completes all things. Who do you want alongside you on a dangerous journey? Not power, not wealth, not knowledge, not the movers and shakers of this world. Redeemer, may we be people who look and lean on the Lord and sing along with Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God, the God of creation. The call would inevitably come on that first night of camp at about 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. The radio, which I had to leave on all night, would ring and it would say, hey, we've got a code blue in cabin four. Now, for those of you who are in the medical profession, code blue is not that serious. That's how we would say homesickness, code blue. So I get in my golf cart and I drive to the cabin. By the way, I really miss having a golf cart as part of my work. We don't have that here. And I'd go to the cabin and I'd walk in and I'd pull one of the counselors and one of the kids out on the porch and I'd sit with them and I'd try my best to listen. But, you know, you kind of know how that goes. I just want to go home, home, home. Every word has like six syllables. And I'd say, hey, I really, I really want to help. I really want to listen to what's going on, but I can't understand what you're saying. So can you breathe with me? And then we'd talk, and they would tell me about how they're missing home, and I would ask more questions about home. Who stays with you at home? Do you have any pets? Can you tell me about them? A lot of people would think that the way to combat homesickness was just to stop thinking about the things that you miss. Oh, well, this is going to be more fun. Let's replace it with this. No, I'm convinced otherwise. 
My job was not to make this child forget about what they missed. It was actually to help them remember why they missed it and to remind them that they would see them again soon. To remind them that they would be there again soon. That way, we can sing together through the sadness. Jesus said, when the world turns upside down with violence and hatred and sickness and death, which we know have and always will continue to plague our world until he comes back, he says, look for the Son of Man coming again. Straighten up and raise your heads. Lift your heads. Look up. Your redemption is drawing near. So look up, child of God. Remember why you're homesick and rejoice together that we'll be there again soon. Can you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are coming soon. We pray that you would. Lord, I pray for our hearts as they ache, as they are homesick. But Lord, as we sing together right now, I pray that you administer to our souls by your word. Thank you for this body of Christ. Thank you for the people who are here. Lord, I pray that you would heal and restore our world, Lord, but our own hearts. We love you, and it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen.